brought to account. So Jonah uh, is now on the run from God. If you were here the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know what's happened so far, though it's only three verses if uh, you weren't to just read through there at the start of chapter 1. God's called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the massive empire that's rising up against uh, Israel and there to challenge them to repent and turn to God from their sin. Jonah, in response to that, immediately wants to go in completely the opposite direction and he heads off for Tarshish, goes down to Joppa and there boards a ship heading for Tarshish, which as far as we know was in Spain some 1,800 miles in the wrong direction. wants us to see first when God acts against you there in verses 4 to 6. My friend, if you are God's child, if you're a Christian, you really cannot escape God. That might at first, I suggest, seem a frightening thought. The thought that you can't get away from him, the thought that you can't um, escape him in any sense, that he knows where you are, he knows what you're thinking, he knows what you're doing, he knows how your heart beats, he knows what your mindset is, he knows you intimately and he knows everything about you and he won't let you go. That might seem frightening until you remember the fact that God's committed to your well-being. He's promised that all things will work together for the good of those who love him according to, according to, called according to his purpose. And if you're his child, then his purpose in not letting you go is to do you good. His purpose in not letting you go is to bring you back, to restore you, that you can enjoy him and delight in him like you've never done before. And so what might seem a frightening thought to start with is actually a wonderful, a marvellous, reassuring confidence that however much in your frailty and in your failing and in your sin you might want to run away from him, he will never, never let go of you. And the time for Jonah has come that God is going to stop him where he is. He's run so far, and I guess as far as Jonah's concerned, his next port of call is Tarshish. He's made it, he's got away from God. Humanly speaking, nothing's going to now send him back. The ship's not going to suddenly turn around the middle of the sea. He can't get off at some point now and go back. The next time he puts his foot on dry land, he's going to be in Tarshish as far as he knows. 1,800 miles from where God has called him to be, right away from where God has told him to serve. And God says, no, at this point, I'm going to stop you right where you are. And such is God's determination to deal with his children, such as his commitment to stopping us going too far, that he will even raise a storm to prevent this man going away from him. And verse 4 in the NIV says, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. The ESV expresses it uh, better and, and more dramatically, if you like. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. God says, no further Jonah, this far you've gone and this is where it stops. I'm going to deal with you here before you go another hour away from me. Now before we go any further, can you see how disastrous it is when you disobey God? Can you see how disastrous it is when if you're a Christian you seek to run away from him? Firstly, Jonah's dreams of comfort and ease away from the where the Lord wants him to be are about to come crashing down around his ears. The idea that somehow he can go somewhere where God doesn't want him but still be happy, still be comfortable, still be well off, Tarshish is land of riches, he can be there and live an enjoyable life, that's just about to come crashing down. But not only that, his very life is in danger here. He, he's, he's on a ship that is breaking up. 
Now, I, I guess many of us have had holidays in the Mediterranean and we've probably gone swimming in the sea and it's been like a mill pond and you say, what a lovely place to, to, to just be. It can be a, a, an horrific place to be. And this storm is clearly an horrific storm. The, the ship's in danger of breaking up. These seamen who've spent their lives on this, these waters, they're terrified. They've never seen anything like this. That they later on try to chuck all the cargo overboard, everything, to try and save this ship. This is a desperate time for Jonah. And not only for him, also for the captain and the crew and anybody else aboard this ship. And that's how it is, isn't it? When we run away from God as Christians. When we seek to go against God, when we seek to disobey Him, when we seek to continue in something that God's pointed out to us is wrong. Firstly, any ideas that we have that we might live a comfortable, contented life like that are just going to evaporate. It isn't going to happen. But more than that, we're in a dangerous place. And we probably don't realise that to start with. And Jonah doesn't. He's asleep on his bunk. He couldn't care less. But, but, but his very life's in danger here. And while, our, and while our salvation is secure, we can't lose that. We're in a very dangerous place as a Christian if we're in rebelling against God, even for a moment. And not only does it affect us, but it so often affects those around us, doesn't it? It damages our relationships, it damages our loved ones, it damages our witness, it damages everything that we try and touch and do. And that's exactly where Jonah is here. That's what happens when you go against God. And look, he ends up totally useless to man or beast. Look at verse 6. The captain went to him as to Jonah and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and will not perish. Here's Jonah, God's man, God's servant, God's prophet. Here he is on a ship with unsaved men. He shouldn't have been there in the first place, but allowing the fact he's there, the very least he could be doing is talking to them about Christ. And here they are in the middle of a storm and it looks like they're about to drown. You'd think he'd be pleading with them to turn to the living God that at least they'll be saved eternally if they perish in this storm. He's not even doing that. He's asleep on his bunk. He might as well be unconscious. He's dead to the world. It's as though spiritually as well as physically, he's lost total touch with what's going on. It's as though his mind is just switched off from who he is and what his calling is and what his relationship with God is and he's just out of it. And he's no use to anyone, is he? My friend, if you're a Christian tonight, is that you? Is it possible that things have gone wrong in your Christian walk, in your Christian life? and you've got to a a low point and you've got to a point where the reality is that you're just not in a good relationship with God at all at the moment you're not enjoying him you're not delighting in him you're not enjoying reading his word you're not enjoying spending time in prayer before him each day you're not enjoying being in the company with brothers and sisters in Christ in the church you might be here but, but if your heart was opened and your mind was exposed the reality would be not that you're here because you want to be here but you're here because I don't know, people start asking why you're not here if you're not here. You're hanging on, you know it's something you ought to do, but but really you're asleep spiritually. It's as though it's just all passing you by and, and you're no use to man or beast. Is it possible that the very cause of that reason is sin in your heart? That you're just not 
obeying God in something, that God's challenged you or is challenging you over something and maybe you're going to have to look back a way to find what it is but there's something there that you're just refusing to, to bow the knee to Christ over. Maybe it's an area of your life that you're just not letting the Lord touch. Maybe it's some habit that you know is wrong but you won't break it. Maybe it's some relationship that's damaging you or, or isn't right before the Lord. Maybe it's some failure in your witness where you're not speaking out for Christ as you should. Maybe it's some activity you're involved in in your workplace that's wrong. I don't know. You know your heart and the Lord knows it. But my friend, if there's something there and you're just not dealing with it before the Lord, that's how you end up. Well, if that's where you are, look what happens to Jonah there. God comes and God wakes him up. Now we need to understand what's happening here very carefully or we go terribly wrong, won't we? Only in the last week I've heard of yet another person who said, I'm extremely angry with God for what he's done. I sort of, in a sense, understand why a non-Christian uses language like that. They're wrong. They shouldn't be angry with God for what he's done, but I sort of understand what they mean. But there's no reason why a Christian should ever be angry with God. For he never does anything except what is good for you. God does not come here to Jonah to punish him for his sin. That's not what it's about. He's not coming here in judgment on Jonah. He's not coming here to say, Jonah, you have sinned. I'm going to punish you for that sin. If you're saved, your sin has been dealt with. It was dealt with in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. God cannot charge two people for your sin. He can't punish Jesus Christ for it 2,000 years ago and then go and punish you for it now. That it cannot happen. God is just. If you are a Christian, if you are truly born again of his spirit, then your sin has been dealt with. There is no longer a salvation issue as far as you are concerned. You are justified. That's where we were last Wednesday and the Wednesday before, wasn't it? Isn't it a wonderful thing to know? That God has justified you. You stand in a right relationship with him through the blood of Christ and no other way. So it's not about judgment. It's not about punishment. It's not even about God getting even with him. It's not as though somehow Jonah's done something wrong against God so now God's going to get his own back on Jonah like some sort of petulant child. You know, you've done that to me so I'm going to do this to you sort of thing. It's not like that. What it's about is God disciplining Jonah to restore Jonah. It's about God bringing Jonah to his knees, bringing him to repentance in order that he can be brought back to a right relationship with God. And God will do everything that is necessary to attain that and nothing more. Because that's the heart of God. Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. And the writer to Hebrews picks up on that in Hebrews 12 from verse 5 onwards. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which, you have you have, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we, much more, more, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. My friend, it's a sign of our adoption that God disciplines us when we need it. We look in adoption on Wednesday night, won't we? That wonderful gift of God. And if you're a child of the living God, then God will discipline you. And if you go into a state of rebellion against him, if you go into disobedience against him, then he will do anything and everything he needs to do to break you and to bring you back. Because that's what a loving father does. Isn't it? Does a loving father, when he sees his son doing wrong, just say, okay, get on with it? That's great? Of course not. A loving father does everything necessary to bring that son back. And that's what God does. And this is the Old Testament and the New Testament, the sense of adoption is even greater. My friend, are you a Christian? Then perhaps you've experienced the hand of the Lord discipline you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But perhaps you're there right now. And at the time, all discipline seems painful, Scripture says. And I'm sure this was very, very painful for Jonah. But God uses it to bring about what? It says a fruit of righteousness. He uses it to bring you into a right relationship and a right state before him. Not righteous in your standing, that's sealed in Christ, but righteous in your life, in the way you live it. Now before we leave verses 4 to 6, just look for a moment at the seamen. They don't know this living God. At least by some sort of reputation they might. Uh, verse 10 implies that they've got a fear of Jehovah God. What did we read there? Uh, this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. That, that they seem to have an awareness that God is powerful and that it's a dangerous thing to run away from him. But just look at their ignorance. Verse 6. Um, get up and call on your God, lowercase g, just call on the one you believe in. Maybe he will take some notice of us and we'll not perish. They've got no real understanding about this God, the creator of heaven and earth. And look how they try to save themselves. Verse 5, what do we read there? The sailors were afraid and cried out to his own God. They sought a God to save them. They cried out to the gods that they had heard of, the gods they knew, the false gods they worshipped. And they cried to those gods to save them and nothing happened, friends. Nothing happened at all. They tried false religion, verse 5. They tried good works, if you like. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. They tried to save themselves. They said, perhaps we can save ourselves. Let's jettison everything we don't need and see if that saves us. And that doesn't work. My friend, is it possible there's someone here tonight who's not a Christian? That you've never recognised your own need of God's intervention in your life? That somehow you've reckoned that you can make it to heaven through other gods? Be they recognised gods or gods that you've invented or made up for yourself and you've somehow reasoned that as long as I've got a God, it doesn't matter which God it is, I'll get to heaven that way. 
It doesn't work. There's no salvation in any God other than Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've reasoned that you can save yourself. You can, as it were, jettison everything that's wrong and everything that's not helpful and somehow if you do that, then that will be enough and you'll be saved. That doesn't work either. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of the Lord, Scripture says. Is it possible that you're trying to get to heaven by some means like that? I've got to tell you, it won't work. There is a way to be saved. The way to be saved is to recognise that before a holy God you are a sinner. And that means simply that you've you've lived in rebellion against God you haven't lived as God wants you to live you haven't thought of him as God wants you to think of him you haven't honoured him in your thoughts you haven't worshipped him you haven't magnified him your whole mindset has been me rather than God and and, and you've proved your objection to him by breaking the rules and the laws that he's given in so many ways And you haven't woken up each morning of your life saying, I really want to honour God today. I really want to live for the glory of God today. Instead you've woken up and said, I want to live this life for me. It's my life. And we need to recognise, you need to recognise that that's sinful in God's sight. And that rejection of him, that rebellion against him has got to be judged and it's got to be condemned and it's got to be punished. And that the punishment for that is that you're going to spend an eternity in hell not just rotting away in the ground, not just outside of God's blessing, not just on some secondary place, not as good as the best, but in the place of abject horror, in the place where God pours out his wrath on sin, in the place where God eternally punishes that which is wrong in us. And the only way you can avoid that is by throwing yourself on the mercy of God and his grace in Christ Jesus. To understand that Jesus Christ went to a cross and he died there in order that God could punish in his body what your sin deserves. Not because you deserve him to do that for you, but despite the fact that you don't. And have you come and just asked God to forgive you and cried tears of repentance before him? Asked him to forgive you for your rejection of him. Asked you to forgive you for your selfishness. Asked him to forgive you for each and every law that you've broken of his. And asked him because of Jesus, for Jesus' sake, to forgive you. And put your trust and your hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone for your salvation. Not in Jesus plus anything, but just in what Jesus Christ did there on that cross 2,000 years ago. Have you done that? And have you given God your life and said, Lord, I can't repay you, I don't want to, I can't earn your merit. All I want to do is to just give you my life in praise and adoration of what you've done for me. And yielded your life to him. Have you done that? Because that is the only way you will be saved. And these seamen had to learn that lesson. They couldn't save themselves. Not through other religions, not through their own efforts. They could not do it. And no more in a spiritual sense can any human being.
Now I want us to see Jesus refers to himself and we're going to look at that in the coming week as one greater than Jonah. You remember he says one greater than Jonah is here. And there's a particular context in which he uses that. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. But I just want us to see a picture here of Jesus. Do you see a picture just in these verses here? Here's Jonah asleep in the boat in the middle of a storm. And what do the seamen say to him? Or the captain say to him? Verse 6. How can you sleep? Get up and call in your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. They say to Jonah, wake up. This boat is in danger of sinking. Wake up and cry out to your God and maybe we'll be saved. And Jonah wakes up and he can't do anything to save them. And then in the New Testament, what do we find in Mark 4? There are the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus in a small boat, smaller boat than this. And this storm comes up. And what do we read? Verse 37 of Mark 4. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. Rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Oh my friend, you see, even in that, how much greater Jesus is. Jonah can cry out to God and God doesn't answer his prayers because there's a reason God's brought this storm on Jonah. But when Jesus Christ is asleep in a boat and his sleep is so different to Jonah's, his isn't a sleep of indifference, it's not a sleep of rebellion, it's not a sleep of, in, of complacency, it's a sleep of absolute confidence. He's the sovereign God of all glory. And when the disciples in their fear wake him up saying, can't you save us Lord? He doesn't have to cry out to God, God please intervene. He is God. He simply stands up and says, stop! And the storm instantly stops and the waves instantly cease. And there's absolute calm there on that sea. Do you know that Jesus, my friend? Do you know him? Who has absolute power over absolutely everything. He's the one who can save. And save completely. See when God finds you out. Verses 7 to 10. Scripture nowhere advocates the idea of casting lots or any means of, quote, chance, either to determine the future or to determine what the cause of a problem is or an issue is. Scripture is totally against that idea. But these are heathen men. These are men who don't know the living God. These are men who serve false gods. And they cast lots because that's their way of seeking to know the cause of things and what to do. But God is sovereign. And God can work through any means he chooses and it, and it pleases him to work through that to reveal Jonah's rebellion and Jonah's sin. And so Jonah finds himself having to explain to this group of heathen sailors who he is and what he's done that he's disobeyed his God. And look how he describes his God in verse 9. He really is without excuse for what he's done, isn't he? He knows who God is. I'm a Hebrew, 
and I worship the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital B, Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal name of Almighty God. I worship the great I Am. And then he adds to that, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. I worship the God who is above all. And I've disobeyed him. And I'm running away from him. What a come down for Jonah. He's come from prophesying to the king of Israel and seeing great blessing come on of Israel by his words or the Lord's words through him and, and having the gratitude of his nation to stand in before a bunch of heathen seamen and admitting that he's a sinner in rebellion against God. What a come down. My friend, that's what happens when you rebel against the living God. Do you still revere that God like when you first knew him? Or have his names somehow just become names to you? Does it fill you with fear, the thought of disobeying him? Does it fill you with fear, the thought of rebelling against him? Even in the smallest, to our way of looking at it, the smallest of things, does that petrify you, the thought that I might disobey God? the creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh from eternity to eternity, does, does it, or is it possible that as his child, knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you're justified, knowing that you've been adopted, do you somehow now have some sort of complacency about sin? That really it doesn't matter, this is only a small thing, God's forgiven me. God's not going to hold this against me. God, you can't justify sin. You can't justify sin. God needs to deal with that in you. And God will deal with it in you. Either you're going to drop dead and then you're going to have to stand before Almighty God and answer for it. As a Christian, Romans 13, 12 is it? Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And that's written to Christians on that day when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ your life is going to be laid open and God's going to say to you as a Christian just explain to me out of interest how you lived your life for my glory. There's not going to be any eternal salvation issue in it. It's not going to determine where you go. If you're a Christian, you're saved. But, but you're going to have to answer to God for it, my friend. So the last thing we'll do before we enter glory is see our failure as Christians, is to see our a disappointing record and, and then rejoice in God's grace that has covered all of that in the blood of the Lamb and that's, that's going to be the wonder of glory that we're going to go into heaven seeing so clearly our failure and seeing so wondrously the grace of God either it's going to be there until we die or God's going to just have to intervene in our lives and stop us and say look I'm going to deal with that right now and that can be so painful and if we insist in rebelling against him over it, it might well be exposed before the world to see, as it was for Jonah. We'll see finally when God provides no letter, verses 11 and 12. They say confession is good for the soul, meaning sharing, being truthful with one another. Um, it's a popular saying, it's got no scriptural basis at all. There's nothing good for your soul in confessing to one another. It's good for the soul to confess to God. And Jonah confessing before these captain and these sailors, 
might have somehow made him feel a bit better but it hasn't yet dealt with the problem God doesn't say okay at this moment I'll stop the storm God's still got to deal with Jonah but it's out in the open now and that's the first step at least Jonah now recognises there's something he's got to deal with before God my friend what a terrible point to have arrived at and that's just where we're going to stop tonight because from here on it gets good but I just want us to stop right here where Jonah's at this lowest point he's about to be thrown into the sea because it would do us good just to pause there till the next, till next week can I just encourage you to see a couple of things as we do that firstly this previous service for God is no guarantee against future failure it isn't it might be the temptation for us to start to think well I've, I've served God well all this time so I'm okay I'm not going to end up getting it wrong. That person might and that person might, but not me. You know, I've, I've progressed. I've got on down here. That was Jonah, my friend. He was a successful prophet of the Lord before it went wrong. Previous service is no guarantee of future good service. Every day we're dependent on his grace. Every day we need to search our own hearts. Every day we need to come before him and confess our sins. Every day we need to make sure our walk is right before him. Lest we end up where Jonah ends up. Second thing I want to see is this. Only God knows how low he needs to bring us in order to break us and restore us. And if God's dealing with you at the moment and it might be very painful, my friend, don't be tempted to give up. God knows what he's doing if you're his child. And he will do what he needs to do to bring you back. And he'll do what he needs to do in order that you will know his love and his grace and in order that you'll come back and you'll be in a right relationship with him. And thirdly, if you're the Lord's and you're in rebellion against him, be it over one sinful pursuit, one issue of holiness, one habit that he would break, one area of service, whatever it is, the truth will out. You can't carry on and be successful in the Lord's work until you deal with that issue. God's got to bring Jonah right back to where he started. He brings him back the start of chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You know, God needs to deal with what he needs to deal with in us. So stop running away. No good can possibly come of it. All that can come is pain to yourself, and harm to others my friend are you trying to run away from the living God tonight please turn back before the Lord has to intervene and bring you back we're going to sing in Christ alone my hope is found number 1346 mm.